At the risk of talking this up too much, you are about to listen to the best podcast I have ever done. This week's guest, um, I let out whoops of delight, um, emailed and messaged people, um, got ridiculously overexcited, um, but having recorded the podcast, maybe it wasn't overexcited at all, it was completely fitting, um, because the guest that I have with me this week um, comes to us from the University of California, Berkeley. He is the head of, well, he's the professor rather, of psychology and director of the Greater Good Institute. His name is Dasha Keltner. He wrote a book called The Power Paradox, which I read um, a few months back, but it has been one of the most impactful books I have read because it talks about how we really gain influence. Um, We talk about this a lot in the podcast, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if you want to really influence the world you, you live in, Um, in a positive way, because we know that there are those who can influence through force or or coercion. Um, If you don't want to be that kind of person, well, what else do you do? And sometimes we want to run from influence because we don't feel like it's, uh, you know, you've heard the the saying about all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Uh, We do touch on that too. But Dasha Keltner is a man who has applied the sciences to the greater good, and how we can make a positive difference in the world. His book, The Power Paradox, talks about how we gain influence and how we can lose it. The very things that we did to gain influence are the very things that we stop doing once we have achieved a position of power. And so he was just someone that I knew I wanted to try and uh, talk to, reached out, and we were able to make a time to record, uh, well, what you're about to listen to. So you don't have to be a scientist or a psychologist to understand the themes we're talking about here. It's nothing less than the, the purest form of influence and how we change the world that we live in. So I'm sure you'll enjoy this. Here he is, Dasha Keltner. Well, good morning. And um, it is my extreme pleasure to have... Dasha Keltner joining me this morning on the podcast. Thank you so much for making time. Well, the afternoon, I suppose, for you, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's Friday afternoon. <laughs> it's great to be with you, Andrew. Hey, look, um, overall, my goal is to get you to do far more of the talking than me, but I just thought it might be kind of cool to start with a little story for you to let you know how I discovered your book and why it was so impactful for me, and I, I guess we can okay. go from there. Is that all right? Sure. It sounds great. Yeah. So, look... Um, Anyone who's listened to this podcast before as well would, would probably know that I am a incurable um, idealist. Uh, yeah. And so uh, kind of changing the world has always been a goal for me, even when I couldn't tell you exactly how I wanted to do it. Um, but one thing that I observed was that there were many people who started this journey of, of changing the world, being part of an amazing cause. Uh, and yet at some point down the line, um, they had a, had a bit of a fall. Uh, yeah. and, and sometimes became became a monster, became became the very thing that they started off crusading against. Um, yeah. You know, it could be in charities, could be in politics, whatever, you know, start off very positively minded and then, you know. Um, and so this gave me a bit of a fright because I thought, well, how do I make sure that if I pursue this this life of trying to change the world that I don't basically become what I'm trying to, you know, cure the world from? Um, and so yep. your book, I found amazingly insightful about that, called The Power Paradox, and just talking about our understandings of of power and, and how we gain influence and that sort of thing. So I thought, first of all, maybe we can start on this idea of power, because it's the first thing that you really address in the book, too, to say that what we think about when we consider power has been shaped by certain things, and there's perhaps a better way to consider it in terms of how we impact our world. Is that an okay place to start? I think that's a fundamental place to start. Awesome. Well, over to you. 
Yeah, you know, well, thanks for bringing that up, Andrew. And and like you, uh, I'm an idealist, and it's it's interesting because there may be no concept uh, more prone to cynical interpretations than power, right? Mm, yeah, man. You know, when we think about you know who has power, um, do I want power? Do I want my kids to have power? It's almost as if a power is a dirty word. Mm. Uh, and in point of fact, um, I think a lot of the data suggests that, you know, we really uh, have reason to think that there's a, a more optimistic, idealistic basis to power and that it's really changing. So uh, to, to start where I start in the book, The Power Paradox, um, you know, power use three, 400 years ago or 500 years ago, power was really about, it was more about violence and top-down mm. coercion and manipulation. And as we've evolved historically and as a species, power has become a much broader thing, right? So it isn't just about asymmetric force or violence. It's really about uh, how I define it in the book, which is your individual capacity to influence other people, to alter their ideas or their emotions or their physical health. And so when you broaden that out and you start to think about power as my capacity to make a difference in the world, it gives you this really a much more idealistic view of what power is, right? It can, yeah. it, it really is about, in some sense, doing good in the world. Well, it becomes a noble thing to pursue. Uh, yeah. And I think that you, I, you make a great observation there too, that particularly if you are not, if I was to cross into other areas of psychology, like with psychometrics, if you're, if you're not like a, a dominant kind, kind of personality that wants to be the boss, um, a lot of people, when they're presented with the opportunity of being more influential, uh, you're right. There's a connotation of going, oh, but I don't want to be that person. I don't, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to boss people around or uh, pursue that that idea of power that says I'm pushing people, yeah, making people do stuff they don't want to do. Um, but again, what you're saying really is that if we think of power as the ability to influence somebody else's state, it becomes noble and the kind of thing that you know we can all embrace. Yeah, you know, and it's funny that you say this because you know we we do know empirically that. Uh, a lot of people feel that power is just inherently, it, it exposes you to doing bad things in the world and they shy away mm. from wanting to make a difference in the world. But I think that the, one of the lessons of this book, The Power Paradox, is just the opposite, which is yeah. that, you know, when you get out into the world and you feel like you have power, you can do enormous good. And, and in the book, I try to draw people's attention to these amazing um, examples like Virginia Apgar, who is this doctor, one of the first female uh, pediatrician scientists at Columbia University. Yeah. And she de simply developed this measure for the APGAR score for assessing the wealth of newborns. And mm -hmm. by that act of influence has saved hundreds of thousands of lives, right? Yeah. So there are a lot of ways in which we make a difference in the world and have power. And I hope uh, that the reader kind of just opens up their mind a little bit to the, the brighter side to power. Yeah, yeah, because you also talk about too that distinction between, um, I guess, short-term power and lasting power, um, yeah. and I think that's really powerful as well. Um, something that I've explained to other people is, say, the analogy of in politics, for example, where uh, you know you can you can come to power, you know, even through force or through some kind of um, you know uh, you know vast promises or, or emotive kind of polemic, uh, but to keep that over time, you have to be seen to be continuing to act in the in the greater good for everybody. Yeah, you know, I, and you're getting right to the core of the book, uh, and I really appreciate it. So, you know, we often are misled by 
thinking about power in terms of the people who kind of in really dramatic Hollywood fashion, you know, yeah. grab it like our, mm -hmm. you know, in the United States, our recent president. Um, sure. But in point of fact, you know, when you take a long view of a human life or human history, what really matters is how long you keep it. Right. Mm -hmm. And historians are really interested in this. And so they do analyses of what are the politicians and the scientists and the public figures who have long standing, enduring contributions to the shape of history. Yeah. And we gain power sometimes by taking people down and being Machiavellian and sociopathic. <laughs> yeah. But the, but the real enduring changes that people bring about are often uh, of a more benevolent nature, like you're saying. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm I'm glad you did, actually did bring up the Donald Trump kind of thing because it's something I actually <laughs> yeah, look. I, I wanted to speak to in a more positive kind of frame as well because actually something yeah. about your book that helped me with that um, yeah. was that to to look at it from the outside and look. Some people will be listening to this and they think it's a great thing and others don't and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but to me, you know, you make a point in there as well that there's an inverse relationship between power and empathy, um, and and even that you've got a you know some really cool uh, scientific evidence behind this that says when we feel powerful, basically we don't, we find it harder to associate with the feelings and struggles of others. And so for me to look at this case study, you know, we can look at what happened with Trump. If you're not a Trump supporter, you know, you a lot of people look at it with horror and dis and dismay. Yeah. But to me, you know, to look at it and think, well, actually, there had to have been a group of people who felt so disempowered, so, yeah. so weak, so neglected that this was the best option. This was the guy that they went, you know what, this is the best solution here. And that's on us. You know, like yeah. we, we created an environment where there's a group of people who think that somebody who behaves like that is the best option, um, which at least made it easy for me to talk to people who had, had made that choice. Yeah, you, you know, I'm so glad you're bringing this up, Andrew, because, you know, I, um, as I write about in The Power Paradox, I had this really interesting experience as a young kid, which is my parents moved me mm. from a middle class neighborhood to a very poor, white, rural uh, county in California, very poor, where people are really suffering, like a lot of people in the United States today. Mm. And, and quite honestly, as Trump was rising, you know, whatever you obviously his his language about women and, and minorities was deeply offensive um, and problematic. But he in other ways, he he was the person, the candidate who empathized and spoke to the concerns of that constituency in the United States. You cannot deny that. You know, yeah. he was talking about people in the U.S. who lost jobs in disempowered states in our country. Mm. And I think that was the reason he won. Now, what's interesting, and, and he really is uh, a textbook case of the power paradox, which is yeah. he wrote through this set of, of, of a language and a style that appealed to, you know, white voters who had, had suffered economically. And there are a lot of them mm. uh, lost that <laughs> set of skills uh, in the course of being president. So it's a kind of an interesting example of what I write about in the book. Yeah. And in fact, too, something that I think elections show us and you communicate very well, too, is is that power ultimately, again, we talked about this a bit before, that we think of power as something that is that is grabbed, that is taken. Um, but that real, real kind of lasting power is something that's given. Um, and politics is probably the best example of that, where somebody will get up and say, you know, I am for this. Uh, in fact, it's probably better for you to speak on these kind of points, but about how how communities, when somebody stands up, how they gain influence and are given power 
um, they do that by certain behaviors that people decide, yes, you're the kind of person I can invest power in. Could you speak to that for a bit? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, one of the really interesting things is when I started studying power in the lab and out in the world, you know, 25 years ago, there were these myths out there about what power is, right? Power is just force and violence. Well, when you really look at who's making a difference in journalism or medicine or technological advance, there is some force involved, but a lot of it is about building the greater good and managing great teams. Mm. Uh, a second myth, and, and you're really uh, addressing it, is you know how do you get power? And there was yeah. this idea, and I really think you can trace it back to Machiavelli uh, mm -hmm. and, and the history of Europe uh, in that time period of power is about grabbing it, right? Killing yeah. people heading them and then you have power <laughs> right uh, but but it's really interesting Andrew you know when you look at earlier human societies like our hunter-gatherer uh, uh, friends uh, living in the conditions in which we evolved for 200,000 years you don't go grab power from people instead the social collective based on your merits and what uh, you do for the group gives you power right mm -hmm. and your power is only as good as the trust the people around you have in you. And when I teach organizations today, you know, of every kind, um, that's just a raw fact, which is that your power rests in the faith and the respect that other people have for you. And once you start to violate it, mm. you, you find like, God, I don't have the influence that I once had. People aren't <laughs> yes. listening to me as carefully. I'm missing out on opportunities. So power is given, not grabbed. Yeah. In fact, I love, you know, when you're speaking of that in a commercial um, application, um, for me, uh, when I'm not doing podcasting, um, I, I work in a uh, kind of a corporate training and, and coaching environment where uh -huh. something that I've observed um, has been, I'd be interested to get your perspective on this, that I feel, sure. say, completely anecdotally on my side, from like about the 80s or 90s, um, we had a very big shift in business in terms of what yeah. constituted a, a good business. And we went from the kind of place where people could work somewhere for 20 or 30 years quite safely, feel very good about it and be looked after. And and we decided to make the profit motive, shareholder value, the number one thing. Yeah. And, and that brought with it a type of yeah. doing business. Even even the phrase, uh, you know, air quotes, business is business. Um, yeah realizing for me that you know that's never a phrase that is uttered by the person on the receiving end uh, you know like a person never gets fired or has a deal broken or gets ripped off and goes well yeah no but business is business so you know honey i lost my job but business is business so you know we'll be fine um but what i have started to notice in the last maybe say five or ten years is as a as a growing proliferation of material of people who've said actually that is a way to run a business but it yeah. is very, um, uh, you know, the churn rate is very high, even the health effects. And that is something you talk about too in the book, which maybe we'll get to a bit later on, of, of yeah. people who are disempowered. Um, yeah. Maybe there's a better way to do this. Maybe if we looked after one another and worked for the greater good, we'd get greater results. Yeah, you know, well, you know, very often academics and social science trails behind a little uh, what's happening out in the world. And it's mm. it's really encouraging you to hear to hear you say that, Andrew, you know, that, you know, there is this shift in not only in organizational culture, but the principles by which the business principles by which you look after the quote bottom line. Yeah. And we're seeing that social scientifically as well in the lab and, and in studies. So, you know, people like Mike, Mike Norton at Harvard Business School, 
Mm. My lab uh, and others are starting to show that generosity, that prosociality, that sharing within an organization actually enhances the bottom line, mm. that more horizontal you know, forms of influence where everybody's contributing at the table, it isn't so based in titles and vertical top-down structures, is actually better for innovation. So I, and, and I write about this in The Power Paradox, that in the last, it's ebbed and flowed, but we are seeing this gradual shift to greater empowerment. And I, I hope it changes how we distribute resources too, uh, that, that profit motive, as you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I think it'd be quite cool to talk particularly about the, the scientific um, backing and what we're talking about here too, because yeah. one thing that I find you can get resistance about in a business yeah. context is when we talk about things like sharing and, and empathy and, and those sorts of things, um, those particularly uh, perhaps who have been in leadership, maybe in their 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s kind of now, um, see this stuff as very fluffy, um, intangible. Um, yeah. But what your work does, which I love, is that you're actually putting some scientific kind of meat behind it. It's probably the wrong metaphor to use, but whatever. Um, <laughs> some some kind of substance behind it that says, actually, this yeah. isn't just wouldn't it be nice, but there's actually a, a scientific grounds for even if you're going to be purely cynical about profit, uh, this is a better way to do it. Yeah, you know, so it, and and I'll, I'll, I'll walk, you, you know, your listeners through and, you know, thanks for bringing this up. Um, mm sort of how, how we're starting to think about this. And, and I was actually blown away by um, kind of this, this body of science that's kind of rethinking what makes for strong organizations and healthy teams. And, and, and you can think about it almost like a, a virtuous cycle of generosity. And it, and it goes as follows. Uh, and, and, you know, when I teach this to organizational leaders, they said it, it's like, oh, yeah, now I kind of get... <laughs> Uh, I get a sense of how this works. Um, so imagine a manager, right? Um, let's call her Maria. And she has a chance to do something good for a team member, a person in an organization. So let's say she expresses gratitude, right? Or she shares an idea or she gives responsibility away. Those are pro-social acts. And what we know is that the brain is wired in ways that when I'm good, when Maria's good to somebody or I'm good to you, I get a little burst of dopamine in my brain and I enjoy that, right? right? So it's inherently rewarding. Then we know from work by James Fowler and Nicholas Christakis, who study social networks, that you know, if, if Maria is good to a coworker, that coworker is then more generous and productive in subsequent interactions. Maria's not there, she's now moved on to another task, but the people she's been generous to are working better, right? And this is one of Adam Grant's central ideas is giving promotes innovation. Sure. Here's where it's really interesting with respect to power, which is those other people inspired by Maria's generosity now start to make these offhanded comments about the quality of Maria's leadership. Mm. And she develops this really strong reputation in the organization, right? Mm. And we've said that. And that reputation spreads through the social network and becomes a basis of her influence. Yeah. She gets more resources, uh, people promote her, they're interested in working with her. So it's, it's interesting how you can take early acts of, of kindness and gratitude and the stuff I write about in the book mm. and see like it's making stronger organizations unfold. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, why don't we kind of go point for point now in the book you do outline yeah. kind of like a 20 point 
uh, overall process for the whole spectrum here. But in terms yeah. of the gaining of influence, um, it would be great to hear from you um, how how that's really done in this positive sense that, again, I find so empowering. Could you walk through those points with us? Sure. Um, so, you know, this was, um, you know, I, I mean, this science um, really astonished me, Andrew, you know, so one of the deepest questions you can ask about powers is like, how do I get it? You know, mm -hmm. and, and there are hundreds of books on the theme, um, you know, Machiavelli on, yeah. you know, you send your child, you send your child off to school and you want your child to have a lot of friends and to be popular, right? Mm -hmm. You, you join an organization and, and you want to have some influence on the direction of the organization. Well, it, it turns out, you know, we did a, a little bit of this research in college groups like fraternities and sororities and basketball teams in the United States. Uh, we've studied kids' summer camps. There are researchers who have studied uh, military units, um, joining workforces, you know, community activist groups. And what they do is they get a sense of the social strategies that the individual likes to practice. And then they follow them over time and then they chart, like, does the person gain some influence or not? Right. Um, here's, here's what we find, you know, uh, across studies. Uh, number one, you know, you got to be a little bit bold and speak up. And you see that time and time again, like, you know, show your strength, be bold, lean in, however you want to talk about it. Number two, you know, reach out and connect to people is foundational to you know, uh, you know, it, it, it might just be a couple of people in the organization, reach out and connect. Uh, number three is you, there's no substitute for state for really having good focus, right? You know, knowing, like identifying, this is the key thing that'll drive innovation in this group. And I'm going to, I'm going to really show my particular expertise. Mm. Number four is, you know, kind of this quality that the great leaders have is being calm and handling stress, you know, and, you know, all the new movements in organizational worlds of mindfulness and breathing and perspective. Sure. Yeah. Sort of tap into that quality. And, and then finally, um, well, not is to be kind of open and risky and sort of float some ideas. And here's the final kicker. Uh, be kind. You know, the yeah. study's fine. You know, no one believes me about this. But <laughs> people are like, I don't believe that. And right. then I, you know, and then you see a dozen studies that, hmm. you know, if I share and I listen and I practice generosity in almost every context, my standing in that group will rise. So where do you think that resistance comes from? Because I, I very much as well, that, that was why I love the fact you've got a scientific thing behind this. Um, that when you hear this idea of being kind, particularly in people run that through the stereotypical corporate cultures they can think of, uh, yeah. it sounds like a license to get run over. So yeah. what's, I mean, that's my perspective. What do you think that, um, that idea of, of kindness being a liability is grounded in? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I, you know, uh, so I, you know, to me, um, I think it comes from a couple of different sources. And one I wrote about in my last book, Born to be Good, which is um, a lot of cultures have been very hostile to compassion and kindness. And I think we're seeing a shift in that where there's a lot of interest. You know, I just wrote a piece for the Harvard Business Review about cultivating kindness uh, as a leader. And, mm -hmm. you know, and so Jim uh, 
Collins, the great, you know, writer on From Good to Great, writes about, you know, the greatest leaders are service oriented. So we historically we've had this deep sort of skepticism and hostility about the concept of kindness that we think we're going to get exploited. And sometimes you do, but more typically it generates benefits. So that's one. And then the other is back to a phrase you used, Andrew, which is this ideology of the profit motive, kind of the very narrow idea that everything has to maximize shareholder value or self-interest. And in point of fact, you know, there are new data emerging showing you know, more service oriented leaders and organizations tend to fare better. Mm. And I think that story will really come into sharper relief as the data roll in and call into question, you know, this stereotype of the the pitfalls of kindness. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> so how, how has this tend to be received when you, when you go and deliver this in a corporate environment or something like that? Uh, what's the, range of responses you get from people? Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting and it, um, and it varies depending on the sector, as you might've imagined, you know? Uh So, you know, when I talked about, uh, you know, one of my dear friends is Michael Lewis, who wrote the big short and liars poker. And, you know, he and I talked a lot about this. Tell him I love his work when you see him next. (laughs) What's that? Tell him I love his work when you see him next. Carry on. I will. (laughs) You're not alone. (laughs) <laughs> you know, but he's been in the in the depths of, you know, of Wall Street and, you know, Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs. And he's like, you know, there are limits. There are certain contexts where kindness uh, has a tougher road ahead of it. Sure. Um, but but in a lot of places, you know, when I work at Google as a consultant or I go to healthcare settings, um, you know, I do a lot of work with Kaiser Foundation, you know, which has tens of millions of um, individuals, they know that kind medical doctors have patients who respond to surgery better, right? Uh, Google knows that if you, uh, develop ways of sharing information that make people that really are sharing, uh, they'll fare better. So, uh, it, it varies on, um, depending on the sector, but they're, you know, really good news is there is this increasing awareness that, uh, kindness has power to it. Yeah. Have you, are you very, very familiar with um, Simon Sinek's uh, work on like, you know, leaders eat last and that sort of thing? No. No. What's the last name? Uh, Sinek, S-I-N-E-K. Okay. He, um, he came, to, came to prominence mainly through a TED talk a little while back about, um, you know, kind of the power of why behind organizations. But um, more nice. recently, and, and this is where I say, you know, I'm seeing more of this idea of, the, I guess, the burden of care. Uh, coming yeah. back to the four, um, his yep. his book, which is yeah, leaders eat last, talks about how providing safety, uh, yeah. in a, and he uses that anthropological example, um, is the responsibility of a really good leader. That there is a social contract that says we're supposed to look out for one another, yeah. uh, and and really healthy cultures and societies have always had that in play and when it breaks down that's when the whole culture falls apart because you can't now focus on the external threats you have to be watching your back as well yep god that's a it's a terrific argument and what i would add to that you know andrew is that you know having kind of worked you know not only as a professor at uc berkeley but then you know going out and consulting and teaching organizations is organ work has changed that requires that leaders do more of this work right Mm. Uh, we work harder. We bring our family issues more to work. We, you know, the, the gender composition is different. 
the stress is higher. And we now know, and, and leaders know this intuitively, and it's well documented in scientific study that a stressed out, you know, troubled worker is going to take more sick days off. They're going to be less innovative. Their physical health is going to be compromised. They're going to mm. get into more conflicts with people at work. And that's, that's this new set of caring responsibilities for people in charge that they have to respond to with, with, with force. Yeah. Look, I'm going to play devil's advocate okay? Uh, because when I hear this, I'm, I'm thinking maybe particularly for those who have that approach where um, in, in leadership roles have said, yeah, but I know that when I crack the whip on my people, um, they work harder, longer, stronger, whatever. Yeah. Um, and this idea of how to apply kindness in this thing, are we just going to give everybody a free pass or something like that? Is, it sounds like a, a way of demotivating people, not motivating people. What would yeah. you say to that? Well, you know, I think that there, I think there are um, two responses. And one, you know, the Western mind tends to think of one concept and then a complementary or different concept can't co-occur with it, right? right? So we think about being kind, but, but then we don't think that you can also be tough and strong. Right. But in point of fact, those two principles can very healthily work sure. together, like right? That. Yeah. Uh, so we can be tough and we can be kind and people will appreciate that. So I think that's the first response. Mm. And then, you know, my second response is what I always turn to, which is data. Right. Um, and, you know, what we're starting to find, and I'll, and I'll give you these two interesting polls to mm. this dimension or this equation, which is, you know, people like Cameron Anderson and Christine Porath and others who are working with leaders and organizations are finding if I'm the tough domineering leader, uh, the quality of the work of the people I'm leading drops, right? Mm. If I'm shouting at them and swearing at them and cracking the whip, you know, they are going to be less innovative. They'll solve fewer problems. Um, by contrast, there are all these new studies coming out. Adam Grant is illustrative. Um, and then also, um, I, I, uh, the, there's an MIT group that's working on collective intelligence of Malone and then Wooly, who's at Carnegie Mellon, showing it really is the great listeners, the great empathizers, the people who are respectful of others, who actually elevate the quality of the work of people around them. So, yeah. you know, I think there's enormous strength in, in kindness, uh, both the individual and then for the groups they lead. Yeah. And, and as you say, there's, there is the science to back that up. I think yeah. to me that the strongest kind of knockdown to this thing is that most counter arguments I have heard are usually anecdotal of a person saying, yeah, but when I did this, blah, 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 or this is what I observed. And look, at a higher level, again, the whole power of the scientific method behind this kind of stuff is we can say, well, that might have been your experience or your observation. Um, and I'm sure there might be people listening right now who are still struggling with that. Uh, yeah. But to say, well, you know, you can you can say that and you can think that, but there is a body of evidence um, that is growing yeah. all the time that speaks and to And I you. just really, you know, I, I appreciate you bringing that out. And not only would I say that, but I, you know, the literature that I consult in The Power Paradox, yeah. you know, you have somebody like Christine Porath who studies people in dozens of organizations. So these aren't just college undergrads, right? Mm. This is people doing complicated work out in the world. And you see the same principles, which is mm. the coercive crack whipping, crack whip cracking leader today, uh, his or her workers aren't doing as well. So, mm. you know, I, I do think the empirical method 
is really important when we take on stereotypes about things like power. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, <clears throat> excuse me. There, there's four things in particular that you talk about where in, um, enduring power comes from uh, within the yeah. book. So it would be cool to get a few thoughts on that. And then I do want to talk on the other side of this because I find it just as, as yeah. fascinating um, that enduring power comes from a few uh, kind of practices or values. So the first one being empathy. So can you speak a little bit to that about how um, enduring power comes from empathy? Yeah, you know, when I, you know, I've spent 20 years thinking about all the, the science and the history that goes into the power paradox. Um, and, and one of the core principles that kept returning, whether it's in a lab study or somebody writing a case study about a great leader or a historian writing about a great world leader like Abraham Lincoln is empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Is the ability to know what other people are thinking and feeling. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, just to illustrate, I love this quote of Thurlow Weed, who is a journalist who wrote about Abraham Lincoln, who was rated by historians as the most powerful, influential U.S. president. Sure. And Lincoln wasn't rich. He was a little awkward socially. Uh, he did not have really refined manners, typical mm -hmm. of the but Thurlow Weed wrote that he sees all who come to see him, hears all they have to say, and reads everything that's written to him. He wow. was a, a genius, and he made it his practice to empathize and to listen and to know other people and to dignify them and to respect them. Um, and, and I think that that is, you know, that builds on Danny Goleman's emotional intelligence or EQ. Yeah. The idea that, man, if I know what other people feel or think, mm. uh, I'm just going to do better. And you do better through empathy be and listening because people are producing better ideas for you. They're innovating more effectively. They feel more inspired because they have voice. They feel less stressed out. All kinds of very proximal, immediate benefits come from simple acts of empathy, empathy, like listening and asking good questions. So that felt like, you know, and, and, you know, Andrew, when I talk to teams, I feel like I work with a company that builds these complicated, um, oil platforms in the North sea, you know, really complicated work. And, and if they say like, what's the single thing I have to do to make my teams do better in this really high risk, dangerous work, it's like, listen well, and well. really that you're disciplined. So empathy is number one. Yeah. And and to use a, um, I, I find the political um, landscape as well is, is a great expression of that for me as well, because how does a yeah. person get elected? Uh, and, yeah. you know, we talked about this a little bit before, but it's the person who can best articulate back to other people what their problem is. I mean, that's yeah. what the, the essence of campaigning is about, right? I've talked to people and they've told me blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and we you know, at, at the end of a campaign, people pick it apart and say, well, who best captured uh, the emotional state of other people? Yeah. Um, that was the one who got all the votes at the end of the day. Yeah, that's terrific. You know, it, it, that's so insightful because, um, you know, the people who have studied the psychological contributors to electoral success actually have not tested that hypothesis. But I think you are <laughs> absolutely right. And, you know, when you think back to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, election, uh, I do feel that Hillary Clinton had an empathy problem. You know, she was yeah. giving these talks at Goldman Sachs, but supposed to be appealing to middle class people in the Midwest. It just didn't line up. Mm. And Trump, ironically, yeah. kind of won the empathy battle in that, that election. Who would have thought? 
Yeah, well, look, I mean, he, 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 although he might have the, the bank balance of the, you know, um, the upper crust, he's got the, the dialogue of a, of a Rust Belt um, construction worker. So, exactly. uh, you know, you go, well, hey, look, you know what? He sounds like I talk. If nothing else, <laughs> party on or vote for that guy, you know? Um, well, look, tell you what, you can, you can have that topic of study, no problem at all. It's all, all yours, run with it. Um, Okay, well, look, the next, the next thing you talk about is, is how enduring power also comes from giving. So, um, yeah, what would you say to that? Yeah, you know, I, I just think, you know, we've talked about the kind of more short-term benefits of giving, you know, and we think about the work of Adam Grant, where when, when managers say, simply say thank you and give right. respect to somebody who's working for them, mm. that act of appreciation, which is an act of giving, mm. makes people productive, right? But I actually think, I think it goes deeper and more enduring than that, which is that, you know, in the, when you really think about the long-term contributions or power you will have in your life or historical figures have, it starts increasingly to be based on the efforts of other people, right? As a scientist, I will have my power and influence is going to rest upon my students and the people Mm -hmm. who are around me. And those, the strength of their contributions really is founded in giving. What I give to them, the ideas I give to them, the resources or opportunities I share. And just everywhere you go, um, you know, and, and in my 20 years of experience uh, out in the field, you know, when people talk about great individuals of power, they talk about their generosity, you know, mm. so. Yeah, you know. all right. So. Number three, then, um, and this does very much connect with that, I think, too, but that idea of enduring power come from expressing gratitude. Yeah. Yeah, you know, well, but, but and, and it's really important to contextualize, which is that, you know, one of the things that um, we found and people like Christine Parath found and people see every day in their lives is that, um, you know, when you feel powerful, mm. uh, you start to treat people with less respect, right? You're a little bit less careful in your language. Mm. You're a little less likely to say thank you. Mm. You may forget somebody's name. Um, I love the example you use in the book about people taking liberties with traffic as well. Uh, You know, depending on the kind of car somebody's driving, they're more likely to, you know, run a red light or something. Oh, my God. I mean, well, that, you know, that's just the kind of the tip of the iceberg in that study. (laughs) You know, we had, we had, our Berkeley undergrads stand by the, this uh, part of a street that has what's called in the United States a pedestrian zone. Uh-huh. Cars have to stop by law right. if the pedestrian is standing there. Yeah. Drivers of poor cars stop 100% of the time. Yeah. Drivers of fancy cars stop uh, about 50% of the time. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and, you know, I mean, that's just one sign of disrespect. And, yeah. you know, you could go on. I mean, you know, one of my favorite studies is they recorded, you know, they kind of took track, they kept track of like, how do people speak to other people at work? Yeah. And, and it's a simple question. Who's more likely to swear to work colleague, a manager or a worker? Right. Right. A manager. Yeah. Two out of three acts of swearing <laughs> are perpetrated by people with power. So what that means is a very powerful tool of enduring power is to do the opposite, which is to cultivate a language of appreciation, to say thank you, to stop by, to write the thoughtful email, handwritten mm. note. Uh, the whole realm of gratitude mm. is, a, is so foundational to 
great leadership and enduring power. And it yeah. disappears when we feel powerful, regrettably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I want to speak about that. There's one more. There's one more thing that you speak about with enduring power. Yeah. And then, yes, absolutely. Let's talk about how it starts to disappear. Um, <laughs> but I love this idea of power coming from being a storyteller as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. This, again, if I'm going to tap, this is partly what triggered that idea about the political um, applications of this, that yeah. people who are good storytellers and communicators that say, let me tell you about an experience that I had, um, or I've spoken yeah. to this person and this is what they're going through. Um, but we reward storytelling with power. That's amazing to me. Yeah, no, and it's 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 one of these things when I teach this to, you know, leaders of different kinds, they kind of like stand back and they're a little surprised and then suddenly it dawns on them. Um, that idea really began in yet another insight into the nature of power. And we tend to think of power as like inside of me and inside my head and what I do. But But in point of fact, as the great thinker Hannah Arendt said, your power is really distributed outside of you in a social network. So my influence in the world and your influence, Andrew, is only as good as all the people you're connected to, right? right. Yeah. And that feels really intuitive once people sort of take a step back and think about what power really is. It's your network. Mm. Well, that then begs the question, which is, okay, how do I... How do I unite these people? How do I get them? How do I inspire them? How do I keep them committed to our collective work together? Mm. Once you ask that question, storytelling emerges as foundational, right? Yeah. yeah. And lo and behold, when you look across the literatures about who are the great leaders and who has an enduring influence in the world, you look at hunter-gatherer peoples and it's the storytellers, you know, they're sure. entertaining people. Yeah. We did studies of social groups, you know, fraternities and campers and summer camps in the United States. And, and it was the great storytellers who had the respect of their peers. Mm. You go to presidential politics. Abraham Lincoln was a spectacular storyteller. Yeah. Ronald Reagan, great yeah. storyteller. Yeah. Right. So what stories do is they unite people. They yeah. inspire them. They they teach them what's important. And, and it's this underappreciated pathway to enduring power yeah well um, actually what shows up for me while you say that is that i'm i'm very aware too that there are those who have decried um i guess the celebrity culture that we have yeah where, you know actors and musicians and people who you know yeah. some would say well they've got no business being listened to who are they anyway um and yeah. people rail against those who have gained influence that way uh, but if i look at who you are as an actor who you are as a musician you are a storyteller you know, somebody yeah. who, who sings a song tells a story about an experience. And sometimes it's as simple as, you know, girl, you're the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And people go, yeah, yeah, I've had that experience, <laughs> you know, or, uh, you know, um, let's just go out there and have a good time. People are like, yeah, yeah, I want to have a good time. All right. Um, or as an actor, you know, you're projecting a story that people go, yeah, okay. Um, but because you're telling a story, people go, all right, cool. For one reason or another, we give influence to that. We say, all right, yeah. you can, you can tell me how to live my life now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and there's this, I, I have a deeper reflection on that and I oh, love your please. analysis. Uh, and I think it's an important observation you're making, you know, the, 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 um, there are these interesting studies showing if you want to persuade somebody and change their opinion, mm. uh, and you're deliberating about whether you should use facts or stories. It's a no-brainer right. to use the stories. But, you know, what you say is really important, Andrew, which is that, and it comes out of this storytelling dimension to enduring power, which is that 
our influence in the world isn't just about money or title mm -hmm. or position. It's about the ideas you spread through stories, right? Yeah. Uh, one, one of my heroes is Charles Darwin, and he gathered all these facts, but what he really did, as people have written about, is he was this really amazing writer and told the story of our evolution, which changed the world. Mm. You know, I had the chance um, to work on the film Inside Out. Mm. Oh, with wow. The um, I was a scientific consultant for the, the <laughs> film. And you know you've made it when. You know, when you can be a scientific <laughs> consultant on an animated movie, that is, that is where... <laughs> anyway, well, carry on. <laughs> yeah, it helps to live close by. But Yeah, sure. Uh, but, you know, the director, Pete Docter, um, he's this shy, humble guy who practices a lot of what we've been talking about. He's always grateful and he's a great listener. But he is a phenomenal storyteller. Mm. And I feel like that film you know, inside out changed how the world thinks about the human mind hmm. uh, through the act of storytelling. And what it tells us is power is found in all kinds of different human actions from music, like you say, to film, to hmm. science and so forth. But a, a common theme is just make it a good story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something actually that you touched on there too, that um, I would love to uh, illustrate a little bit more further on. Sure. Um is that idea of persuasion because I think that yeah. is that is incredibly powerful um I should say as a little bit of background again for myself one thing yeah. that kind of led me down this path to even you know again discovering books like yours was understanding decision making for me was was in, was very big at one point and so I started from a place of going okay well let's look at the logical rational arguments for stuff and so yeah. this is going back about 10 years or so, I started kind of informally studying things like logic and philosophy because it was all about having an airtight, rational argument. Yeah. And you think to yourself, or at least I thought, yeah, if I've got that knockdown, you know, airtight, logical argument about something, then I can persuade people. Uh, and you would be surprised to know I discovered that didn't always work. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'd, you go in there with the yeah, best you got, and you're like, boom, like, deal with this. And you go, oh, that just bounced off. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I started to understand, well, look, yeah, there's obviously something else going on here. There's there's something about our psychology that says we need more than just that. Uh, yeah. And I mean, the classic for me is, you know, internet debates. Yeah. Uh, it could be on Facebook, <laughs> you know, that, that Facebook comment that gets out of control or the, you know, the yeah. internet forum or that Twitter conversation or whatever it is. And it's just people getting abusive at each other and saying, you're an idiot for thinking this. And here's my knockdown argument. And you'd have to be retarded not to know that blah, blah, blah. But understanding that actually persuasion, if you just want to win an argument, you can do that. But if you want to persuade the person and bring them with you, you have to have a different approach. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, and I, you know, it's so refreshing to hear your, your observations about this. And I think that that, you know, on that, I was really struck by, you know, early in my, my teaching career by E.O. Wilson, who said, look, we have kind of a persuasion argument, factual mind. Mm. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of great disciplines like, you know, scholarship and history and science that are devoted to that. But we are also a storytelling species that mm. loves stories. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and we can't forget that in this realm of influence and power as well, that reason is wonderful, but storytelling is, is, is on the same level. Yeah, absolutely. If, um, if nothing else too, um, 
what complemented that understanding for me was looking at some studies into persuasion. I suppose you you, you might be familiar with the, the kind of the sociology of knowledge that just says that, you mm. know, we generally aspire, we, we will adopt the ideas of people that we like. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's amazing if you forget that fundamental, that if, if even any new area of study or something like that has usually been the result of you've experienced somebody in a particular field or with a particular hobby, you go, oh, I like that person. Oh, they like this. Okay, I'll give it a go. Uh, yeah. versus yeah. I don't like this person. I find them distasteful. Oh, they are, they're into this thing. I'm never going to touch that. That sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I think it's the first law of persuasion. It's just yeah. it's to be positively viewed and liked. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, I can't believe how quickly the time's gone. Um, <laughs> <Me I too>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm jotting down notes of things I need to read. So, uh, all right. Um, Look, I did want to talk to you about then how we lose power, uh, yeah. because that is that is a fascinating thing. And again, my big motivation, well, one of my big motivations in picking up your book was was seeing how do I safeguard myself from suddenly, you know, I've gained this power and influence, um, but suddenly, you know, I've become entitled. Uh, I've become, you know, a prima donna. Uh, again, the celebrity stories are probably the best. You know, we hear... It's probably unfair to mention by name, but I'll do it for the sake of people listening. People like, say, you're um, Justin Bieber's and, and things yeah. like that, who would say, oh, they were such a nice kid or whatever. And then suddenly, a few years later, they're behaving in such a way that we're horrified. And we say, how did that happen? Yeah. Um, you know, or even those who've got into charities and, uh, you know, serving yeah. the public good. And then a few years later, we find out, oh, actually, they've been started embezzling or they've done this yeah. or that. What happens there? And, and does it have to be that way? That's what I want to hear from you. Yeah, you know, so what happens? Why is it that power corrupts? And as Lord Acton said, absolute yeah. power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, we now know with rock solid science, a couple things happen. And one is um, the feeling of power, the feeling of privilege, the feeling of being above people, mm. thanks to neuroscientific studies and lab studies like mine, you just stop attending to people carefully, right? Yeah. I don't listen to you as carefully. I don't watch your face as carefully. I don't think about what you're thinking as carefully. My empathy declines. The regions of the brain in the frontal cortex that help you empathize are deactivated. And so you're just not taking in information from other people as carefully. And then I think that there's an arrogance that comes along with it, right? That I'm above the law, mm. that what I do is inherently right if I have power, and that's been documented. Mm. And you put those two things together and it's a, a problematic mixture, obviously. And then you just start to see these impulsive, selfish, profit-oriented, greedy mm. social behaviors that we've been talking about. And the litany is incredible. You know, oh, yeah. high-power, wealthy people are more likely to drive problematically, shoplift, swear at their colleagues, cheat in games lie, you know, take stuff from work and not report it, have sexual affairs. I mean, on down the line, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, um, we did a study where we randomly gave one person in a small group power. Mm. They worked on a task. In the middle of the study, we put a plate of chocolate chip cookies in front of them. The high power person was more likely to take a last cookie on the plate right. and then eat with their mouths open, lips smacking, cookie <laughs> crumbs falling all over their sweater. Oh my God. They look uh, ridiculous, you know, yeah. and it goes on, you know? Yeah. So, so that everybody, this is familiar to everybody mm. at work, in their family life, in their own experience. And it begs the next question, which you asked Andrew, which is, well, what do I do about it? 
Yeah. And one thing you do about it is you um, is the social, which is you build groups, you build into groups and social structures and governments mechanisms that constrain people in power. You make mm. sure they're accountable, mm. that they're scrutinized, that they're aware of their reputation. And the minute those things start to fall away or are degraded, you get more abuses of power, like the 2000 and eight economic collapse in the United yeah. States. Once the rating agencies stopped evaluate, stopped really evaluating economic commodities, all hell broke loose, right? Yeah. And then the other thing to think about is what do we do as people, right? Mm. Um, I've made a lot of mistakes from feeling too powerful. You know, I've spoken inappropriately about colleagues and really been and made intellectual mistakes and been too you know, to, uh, to casual with my kids and yeah. driven in problematic ways. And so there's an ethical issue here of as a person to avoid these abuses of power and be a good citizen of the world, what do I do? And, mm. and I think there are answers to that question as well. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally to me, it's just being aware that that is a tendency that we have. I agree. Um, I agree. And, you and, know? and in yeah. fact, you know, when I wrote this piece for the Harvard Business Review, um, they read the book, Power Paradox, they loved it, you know, and, but they said, look, you know, we've got millions of managers reading us who want to know, like, what, what's, what are the keys here, right? What, mm. taking away this, this knowledge, what do I do? And, and the, I arrived at the same insight as you, Andrew, like the first thing you need to kind of sort of think about is, is, and the new science is relevant here, mm. is how do I feel when I'm feeling powerful? And the minute you're feeling like you're the master of the universe. You're feeling <laughs> euphoric. Yeah. You're feeling a little manic. You're talking fast. You start saying things to yourself like, I think the world would be better if I was in charge, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> that, those are signs that you're heading towards trouble. So be aware. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I just got carried away with that and lost my train of thought. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um. What was I going to say? Goodness. Yeah. Um, so with the work that you've been doing, this is work towards yeah. the Greater Good Institute. Um, it'd be yeah. really cool to talk about that a little bit more sure. as well. So um, tell me about tell me about the Institute and, and, and what you guys are about now. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so, you know, you, you know, you said it earlier um, and, and it really is uh, reinforcing to hear other people converge on this idea. You know, we are, I, I really feel like the last 40 years, 50 years have been this period of kind of maximizing self-interest and mm. greed, you know, the ideology of greed and so forth yeah. and profit motives. And a lot of people are hungry for new ideas and, mm. um, you know, new principles to live by, to run a company by, to lead a team by, to, te to talk about at the dinner table with your kids. And, and, and I do think we're in this pendulum swing to those new principles. And that's what the Greater Good Science Center is really about, is to represent these new discoveries of, of the greater good. Uh, things like, lo and behold, you get more power when you share. Yeah. Or did you know that compassion actually activates very old parts of your brain and something called the vagus nerve, mm. and it actually makes you healthier if you practice <laughs> compassion, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or here are the benefits at work of cooperating. 
So the Greater Good Science Center, and it's at greatergood.berkeley.edu. We have millions of readers each month. Mm -hmm. uh, really promotes in friendly terms that science and then the practices that get it for you. So yeah. it's very intertwined with um, the themes of the book. Yeah. So what's what's next for you then? Well, you know, thanks for asking. Um, you know, one thing is um, I am, um, uh, well, I, I would say a few things. One is um, that I, my lab is really working on awe and beauty. You know, mm -hmm. what are the amazing things that happen to your nervous system and your your engagement with other people when you when you go for an awesome walk in a beautiful natural setting or you hear amazing music. Yeah. And that's turning into this incredible story about why we evolved to experience awe. Yeah. Um, and then I am, you know, and it really emerges out of the last chapter of the book, which is the problems of powerlessness. Yes. Like poverty and lack of education and mm. feel stigmatized. Mm which there's a lot of in the United States. And, and I'm really, I believe that a lot of the themes that I talk about in the power paradox and that we write about at the Greater Good Science Center, things like gratitude, we've talked about sharing, kindness, respect, dignity, empathy. Those are really cheap things that we can give <laughs> yeah. to people who, who feel powerless, right? Mm. Um, and so I'm doing that in prisons and, and talking with a lot of healthcare foundations about yeah. how do you build kindness and gratitude into a hospital so people can handle the health circumstances they face better. So I'm working on that as well. Yeah, I'm so glad actually you, you, you that was something I did want to talk about too. So I'm glad it um, popped back up for you, that idea of, of poverty uh, and yeah. even the effect that, because to me, again, poverty is the essence of powerlessness, you know. Yeah. Uh, or vice versa. The point being um, that, yeah. uh, and you talk about this too, that there are there are very real health and even developmental uh, effects that a person experiences when they are in a state of powerlessness. Um, yeah, you know, just, again, being aware of that, um, as opposed to, I mean, again, I, I I live in a white middle class neighborhood, have done yeah. most of my life, right? And so, like a, a refrain I've heard a lot, particularly when you see those in poverty, is to say, "Well, you know, they just need to get a job." Yeah. Uh, and to me, that's the essence of that empathy deficit that you're talking about yeah. as well, right? Where I'm feeling right. powerful, I'm feeling good. If I was in that state, what would I do? I'd just get a job. Well, then that's what they need to do. Yeah. Um, so, getting a deeper understanding of that, I think, is amazing. Yeah, you know, and 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 it really is the. Um, it really is the convergence of two things that happen to me, Andrew. You know, one is uh, I, you know, I grew up for a part of my life in a really poor neighborhood where people's lives were shortened um, by poverty. And then the second thing is this incredible science that I review in The Power Paradox, which basically shows if you live in poverty for the first five to 10 years of your life, your brain doesn't grow as fast, your yeah. immune system is damaged, cells are damaged, and you lose 10 years of life expectancy. And that mapped onto my experiences as a kid. Um, and that science told me that this is a central thing we need to rethink, which is poverty isn't just, hey, just go get a job or get do well in school. It's really right. a, a physical health issue to, yeah. to think about collectively. Yeah. Oh, look, I love that. I wish you all the success with that. Um, 
we've got like a minute to go so i think we should yeah. probably we should probably end on an up uh, okay. so yeah somebody somebody who's listening and wants to just go and change the world that they're listening right now and thinking okay i want to apply this in my situation what would you say to somebody listening right now and saying cool I, i've maybe changed my ideas about power i want to make a positive difference what's something that they can do right now well you know and i hate to say two things but you oh, know by all means the, go for the, 10 if you want you know the the first thing is what you press me on, Andrew, which is like, okay, what are the things you do to have enduring power? You know, practice kindness and gratitude and respect and empathy, et cetera, storytelling. But the second thing, and, and I now do this with, um, with uh, the groups that I lead, you know, thousands a year, uh, thousands of individuals, really powerful people, more powerful than me. And I say, and I, and I ask the question, which is, Think about the last time that you really felt powerful. You felt that tingle go up your spine and you're like, wow, I feel empowered. And think about what are you doing in that context, right? What is what's happening? And when you ask people, when people ask themselves that question, that then becomes this great clarifying exercise of this is what I should be doing in the world. And, and it may surprise you. It may be, you know, wow, I was I was you know, leading this musical group, or I was helping this set of colleagues of mine, or I was taking kids out in nature. And, and that feeling of power, which runs throughout the power paradox, is really what we're after in life and what we want the people we love to experience. And it's a great question to be asking ourselves at each stage of development. That is Dasha Kaldner, everybody, from the University of California, Berkeley, professor of psychology uh, and also one of the directors behind the Greater Good Science Center. That's how you change the world, kids. Isn't that refreshing? I, I found that so empowering uh, when I discovered the book and, and again, why I wanted to share this conversation with you, that it gave me a tangible way of pursuing influence with people that didn't involve strong arming. It didn't involve, uh, as he talked about, being Machiavellian about it, which is to say being manipulative and, um, yeah, strong arming, that kind of thing. But making a positive difference and gaining that uh, influence that we need to positively affect change around us. So inspiring. Um, yeah, the book, The Power Paradox, I'd recommend you check it out on bookdepository.com. You can find it nice and easy. It'll ship for free anywhere in the world. Uh, and don't forget to check out the Greater Good Science Institute online as well. <sighs> that was beyond satisfying. Thanks for joining me for that today. Um, I've actually had some very encouraging uh, bookings as well coming up for the future. We're not sure exactly when they're going to happen yet, such as the nature of the beast. But um, thanks for choosing to spend your time with me this morning and have yourself a wonderful day. Well, it might not be this morning. That's the thing of a podcast, isn't it? Whenever you like. Have a great day. Um, we'll be back again soon. Yeah.